Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 12, verses 27 through 37 will be our text today. And when you do that, may you stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, verses 27 to 37. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Verse 30, Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard that the Christ, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Lord, I thank you for this time. Use me for your honor, for your glory. Lord, give your people discernment or heavenly wisdom. Give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts ready to receive your word. Use me for your honor. And for the fame of your name, in Christ's name I pray, amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are now almost at the conclusion of John, John chapter 12. We are halfway done. The question I have before you is, what is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of your life? When asked that question, some might say that their purpose in life is to get a good education in order for them to make an honest and decent living. Others might say their purpose is to have a family and to enjoy life to its fullest. Uh, The common answer that everyone gives is, my purpose in life is to just be a good person. Books have been written regarding the question of purpose. Conferences and seminars have been attended by millions for people trying to find their purpose. Movies have been made where the main character is struggling to find his or hers purpose in life. Everyone, when they are born, is searching for why they are here on this earth. For Muslims, the purpose of life is the worship of the false God, the one and truly only God, Allah. Uh, Buddha 
when asked this question, didn't give much help. He said, your purpose in life is to find your purpose and give your whole heart and soul to it. For atheists and unbelievers, there ultimately isn't no purpose in life. Life is meaningless. Singers think that their purpose in life is to sing. Athletes think their purpose in life is to play the particular sport. Some find purpose even in their jobs, while others find purpose in drugs. We are told at a very young age, whatever you find your joy in, or whatever you're good at, there lies your purpose in life. And some go their entire life wondering and questioning what their purpose in life is. This question of purpose is even unclear when it comes to the life of Jesus Christ. Many are unsure of why Jesus came in the first place. What was the purpose of Jesus coming to earth? Many would say that Jesus came to just love rebels and outcasts, being our prime example of what it means to love one another. One said Jesus' purpose was to come and to cast out demons and heal the sick. And you can guess who that might have been. Many think Jesus' purpose was to establish a religion, while others say Jesus came to teach us good morals in order that we may follow them. Are all of these claims true? Did Jesus come merely to be a good teacher? Or was Jesus' purpose a mystery? I mean, if we read the Gospels, it doesn't take long to notice that Jesus' own disciples were unclear of who this man Jesus was. Well, thank God, Jesus' purpose was not a mystery. And as we come to our text this morning, St. John gives us three purposes of why Jesus came to this earth. The first purpose was to give glory to the Father through dying. And we'll see that in verses 27 and 28. The second is to slay the devil, to judge this world, and to draw all people to himself. We'll see that in verses 29 to 33. And third is to invite all men to believe in him. We'll see that in verses 34 to 37. Let me set the stage for us. It's Passover week, as you remember. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to absorb the feast. We have on Monday, he's received with praise as people hail him as the Messiah, screaming, blessed is the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. People have heard about this man named Jesus. They heard about him raising Lazarus from the death, from dead. So Jesus is making some noise in the town. The other gospels tell us the next day he goes to the temple. And he clears out the temple, exactly what he does in John chapter 2. So in the story, we are either at day Wednesday or we are at Thursday. We're somewhere between those two days. Whatever day it is, it doesn't really matter because Jesus has his eyes set on Friday. Friday will be the day when Jesus is crucified. And as Jesus contemplates his death... He gives us the theology behind his death and the purpose of why he has come to this earth. So let's first look at this first purpose. Jesus came to glorify the Father through his death. Jesus came to glorify the Father, glorify God through his death. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. We first see in verses 27, 
Jesus starts off making an emotionally driven statement. Now my soul is troubled. The last we read about Jesus' soul being troubled was in John 11, when he saw Mary and the Jews weeping over Lazarus' death. Now we see here, at the beginning of verse 27, Jesus is contemplating his own death. Before the foundation of the world, before time and existence, and before everything was set in motion, Jesus knew why he was to be sent to this earth. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus knew what his assignment from the Father would be. And I can only imagine that Jesus has played how his death was going to transpire over a million times in his head already. He knew what the whips and the beatings would feel like. He knew the mockery that he would receive. He knew how the thorns in his head would feel, how the nails would feel that were driven to his hands and feet, how the spear in his side would feel. The plan that was set before him before the foundation of the world was about to be carried out. The shadow of the cross is slowly becoming more and more of a reality to Jesus. And as Jesus is saying these words, it is as if he is looking at the cross right in the face. Jesus knows that his death is very, very near. The word troubled, Jesus uses, means to be uneasy about something. It means to be anxious. It means to be stressed out. It means to be disturbed. It means to be dark. Theologian A.W. Pink says regarding the word troubled, it reveals to us something of Jesus' inward sufferings. His anguish was extreme. His heart was suffering torture, horror, grief, dejection, are all included in this word troubled. And at one of the most difficult times in Jesus' life, he is so stressed out, he is so emotionally moved because he knows that death is around the corner. He uses a word that if we were in his situation, we would have never used. If we were in Jesus' place, we would never say that we were troubled. Let me give you an example. If we were on death row, if we knew that we were going to die by the end of the week, we could almost feel the electric chair or we could almost feel the lethal injections. And at that time, we wouldn't say that we were stressed out or we were concerned. We would be anxious like Jesus, but the difference between us looking at death and the difference between Jesus looking at death comes down to one simple word, and that is fear. Sure, Jesus was nervous about what was going to transpire, but he wasn't afraid. He, he didn't fear death, because the word troubled has, never has fear or scared in his definition. Jesus uses a particular word, because he was not afraid of what was going to happen. That is the amazing thing about our Lord. He knew his death would be by the end of the week, yet he never was once afraid, nor did he run away from the cross, but rather he walked toward the cross. But if Jesus wasn't scared of dying, if he wasn't afraid of the nails and the beatings that he was going to receive, then why was Jesus' soul troubled? Well, it wasn't over the sufferings that he would receive. It wasn't by the death that he would receive by the hands of men. But rather, Jesus' soul was troubled by the suffering from the righteous wrath of a sin-hating God. Jesus was not troubled over the sufferings of men, but rather the sufferings of God. What troubled Jesus 
was the whole burden of man's transgression being imputed to him. As the cross drew near, the weight of man's sin weighed him down. And the reality of being made a curse for us gave him great anxiety. His bodily sufferings were not the cause of his stress, but our sins are what, are what agonized his soul and what plagued his mind. Jesus knew on the cross that he was, in, he was going to be cut off from the Father as he bore the sins of everyone who would believe in him. And on that dark day, when the sun refused to shine, Jesus would experience the wrath of the Father. And he would feel what everyone in hell will feel. Because he experienced hell on that cross. Second Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. First Peter 2.22, the Son of God himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Galatians 3.13, he became a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a tree. And when our evil sins were laid upon him, as the worst about us laid upon him, Jesus would feel the horrible truth of Habakkuk 1.13, that the Father's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. And in his darkest moments, in his darkest hour, Jesus will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is what was troubling Jesus' soul. Jesus' soul would reach such an uneasy state where we read in Luke 22, at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would sweat drops of blood because of what he was going to endure, namely the Father's wrath. But Jesus did not run away from the Father's cup of wrath. Instead, he drank it. Instead, he absorbed it. And as he rose from the dead, it signified that the Father's wrath has been satisfied and has been exhausted. What Jesus was troubled over was bearing every man's sin on his body. But thanks be to God that he did. But we soon see now an attitude shift as we move on in these verses. Jesus' anguish becomes his anticipation. And his trouble turns into his triumph. Let's read on in verse 27, verse 28. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. It is as if Jesus snaps out of what he was saying. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This hour that, he, that Jesus is speaking of is the same hour that he spoke of in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what's interesting about that verse is, Jesus is talking about his death. But he doesn't say that the hour has come for the Son of Man to die. Instead, he looks forward to the future. Because through his death, he will receive glorification. Up to this point, Jesus always spoke about his hour as something that was soon to come. And even when people would try to arrest Jesus, the Bible tells us that Jesus would often disappear. Why? Because it wasn't his hour. It wasn't Jesus' time to die. He knew that the time has come, however, for the Son of Man to be lifted up. Again, Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Surely if Jesus wanted to, he can call on God to save him from his death. He said in Matthew 26 that he can call on 12 legions of angels to protect him. But as Pastor said last Lord's Day, if Jesus saves himself, then everyone is damned. And then quite frankly, Jesus would be perfectly just in doing so. Because he didn't disobey God. We did. He took on our disobedience. 
in order for our dirty laundry to be made clean in him. Again, A.W. Pink notes, what shall I say? He asks not, what shall I choose? He doesn't say, what shall I choose between the two? He says, what shall I say? As if there's another choice or another option that there is, that's presented to him. There is no wavering in purpose, no indecision of will. Though his holy nature shrank from being made sin, and only marked his perfections to ask that such a cup might pass from him. But nevertheless, he bowed to the Father's will, saying, But for this cause I have come unto this hour. That bitter cup was accepted, and it was tasted for our sake. Jesus knows that escaping this hour is not an option. That failing to complete his mission is out of the question. So he ends, ends verse 27 by saying, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. The reason why Jesus came to this earth was to die. Surely death is a natural event. We must all die eventually. Many of us run away from the thought and even the conversation of death. However, Jesus spoke of his death openly, but also purposefully. Jesus understood that he came to die. From his birth, he was called Jesus because he would save his people from his sins. He knew that he was God's chosen sacrifice. He was born to die a sacrificial death. The cross was not a surprise. It wasn't a new development in the story of redemptive history. The cross wasn't plan B or plan C or plan Z. Jesus' death was predetermined before the foundation of the world, and the cross was the means by which God was going to accomplish his plan. And his plan was to be glorified. Revelation 13.8 says he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Daniel 9 says that he will be cut off, a term describing death. Zechariah 12.10 says he will die by being pierced. Isaiah 53 describes in detail his substitutionary death. Psalms 22 describes his experience on the cross. The theme of the Old Testament is this Messiah that is going to come that will save his people, not through conquer, not through a sword, but through dying. Jesus didn't come to be a great philosopher, as some would say. Jesus didn't come to be a great moralist or start a religion. Jesus came to die. And by his death, not only would he save his people from their sins, but he will receive glory from that death. Verse 28, Father... Glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The cross is much more than, than Jesus paying for the sins of his people. But at the cross, the glory of God would be on full display. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Jesus says, stared at death in the face with all of its awfulness and says, Father, through my sufferings, glorify yourself. Jesus recollects his thoughts and he collects himself and he remembers something that is far more sweet than the agony and the pain. And that is to give God glory and for God's glory to be on full display. Jesus, at a time where he is most distressed, looks toward the chief end of mankind and that is to glorify God. And it reminds you, if you're going through something, always remember and always ask for God's glory to be revealed through your sufferings and through the positive things that happen in your life. Jesus aligns his will with the Father's will. 
and that is the glorification of God. Throughout the life of Jesus, the apple of his eye was the glory of God. The heart of Jesus' mission was the glory of God. The motivation for Jesus to keep pressing on was the glory of God. In John 8, verse 50, Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory. In John 8, 54, he says, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. Jesus' life was lived to glorify God, and that should be the purpose of your life as well. Your chief end is not primarily to have kids and to get a good job and to be a good person, to get married or to make money. Those are great things, but your highest supreme purpose in life is for God to be glorified in your life. And you reflect God's glory in your life. We must lift up God's glory in all the world and magnify him in the eyes of others. And we do that by setting God in our highest thoughts, by giving God adoration and worship in all things, good or bad. Loving God and seeing him as our supreme treasure. And Jesus is our model of one who lived his entire earthly life to glorify the Father. Jesus' request that the Father's name will be glorified, and the Father confirmed Jesus' request in verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Up to this point, Jesus' life, God's voice was only heard two other times. The times when God's voice was heard was reserved for special occasions when he would authenticate Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. Throughout the entire earthly ministry of Jesus, the Father was being glorified. And here we see the heavens open up, and with a loud thundering noise, God is promising that he will glorify his name once again. God has a passion for his own glory. We are in a reformed church, and that is the greatest thing one could ever say. God has a passion for his own glory. Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. The highest and ultimate end of the work of redemption is the glorify God. Like Spurgeon says, brothers and sisters, if we live in sympathy with God, we delight to hear him say, I am God, and there is none other. And what we see at the death of Jesus Christ is God putting himself on display. God is showing himself off once again. God's attributes all burst through the cross as his son pays for the sins of his people. The question is, will you give glory to God this morning? Will you give praise and adoration to the one who sent his son to redeem you from the slave market of sin? Will you, like Jesus, look beyond the sufferings and the pain of whatever this temporary world is throwing at you? And will you look to something that is far more sweet, something that is far more beautiful, and will you cry out for God's name to be glorified in all circumstances? And lastly, will the purpose of your life be like our Savior's, to live a life that reflects the glory of God? That is the reason why you were saved. That is the reason why you were created. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 43, 6-7, that God created us for his glory. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Amen. We love the glory of God. We must marvel at the glory of God. God and his glory, but also our enjoyment in seeing him receive glory is to be the chief aim of in all of our lives. It's not about you. 
It's about God. To live your life and not to glorify God is simply a wasted life. It's an unsatisfied life. It's a life that has no meaning or has no purpose. It's a life that, as C.S. Lewis Lewis would say, it's a life where you are simply just making mud pies in the slums because you can't imagine a holiday at the sea. God is calling you to a much greater life. That life that is not filled with wealth, but a life that's filled of you glorifying him for what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. We must live our lives, do everything for the glory of God. So we see the first purpose of our Lord coming was to glorify God through his death. The second is we will see the, the, the purpose of Christ coming was to was to was to slay the devil, judge this world, and was to draw all people to himself. Verse twenty nine and verse thirty says the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake and not mine. The voice from heaven that sounded like thunder was the Father's vindicating Jesus as God's Son once again. The Father wasn't telling Jesus something that he didn't know already. Instead, the voice from heaven was a sign and was to be a witness to those Greeks who did not know and also those Jews who doubted Jesus as the Christ. Like I said a moment ago, three times the Father spoke audibly to the Son during his lifetime. At the beginning, at the middle, at the end, of his messianic career. And in each case, it was in view of his death. Each time the Father spoke to Christ, it was in view of his death. At the first, at the, at the Jordan where Jesus was baptized, Jesus went down into the waters. We all know that in baptism, when one goes down into the waters, it symbolizes your death. Your death to sin, your death to your old nature, your death to yourself. There at the Jordan, Jesus was symbolically going into a place of death. Second, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9, 30 and 31. And behold, two men were walking, were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, and who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure for which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes his three closest disciples And he reveals to them the glory that he had before he came to this earth. And then two men appear, Moses and Elijah. And what were they talking to Jesus about? About what was going to transpire in Jerusalem, his death. And here we have the third time. Jesus has just announced that his hour has come, meaning that his death is is near. And what do we see again? The heavens open up and the Father speaks. This voice, I believe, was to, again, straighten, strengthen the faith of his disciples. But also, it was to remove all excuse from unbelievers. Which leads to verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The word now relates back to his hour, back to his death. And Jesus gives us three things in which the cross is going to accomplish. The first will be the judgment of this world. The second will be the ruler of the world being cast out. And the third will be the salvation of all of his people. The cross symbolized more than Jesus' love for his people, but also symbolized the judgment of a sin-corrupting world. On the cross, 
Jesus was going to put the world and all of its sinfulness to shame and on display. Up to the point of Christ's birth, the world was without God. It was, it was plunged in idolatry, worshiping devils and false gods, and was in open rebellion against God. The world was totally and fully corrupt in all of its ways. But, but Jesus says, now the sentence of condemnation is at hand. And at the cross, the whole world will be exposed. Theologian J.C. Ryle says, the world shall no longer be let alone and left to the devil and the powers of darkness. I, Jesus, am about to spoil them of their dominion by my redeeming work and to condemn and set aside the dark, godless order of things which has so prevailed upon the earth. It has long been winked at and tolerated by my Father. The time has come when it will be tolerated no longer. At the cross, through Jesus' sufferings, the world will be put on trial. The world was judged. Sin's empire and sin's system was judged. The world thought that they had judged Christ on the cross. They labeled him a blasphemer and considered him too dangerous to be left alive. <clears throat> Although they thought that the verdict that they gave Jesus was so rightly deserved, in reality, Jesus on the cross was giving his verdict to them. The world killed the only innocent person who has ever lived and whoever will live. Echoing the words of Peter in Acts 3.14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. You did it. You will be held responsible. God came in the likeness of men. And what does the world do? It rejects him. That's nothing new, though. John 1.11 tells us that he came to his own. His own people received him not. Isaiah 53, 3 says he was despised and rejected by men. What looked, like, what looked like the judgment of Christ was in reality the judgment of the world. That's the first accomplishment of the cross. The second <clears throat> accomplishment of the cross is what we see at the end of verse 31. Jesus says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The words ruler of this world is also referred to as Satan, the devil. The Bible also refers to Satan as the prince of of this world. In this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is now going to be settled at the cross. Usually when two are at war, the one who dies first is declared the loser, and the one who survives the battle is considered the winner. Satan this whole time has been trying to defeat Jesus, trying to come up with ways and and deceive men on how Jesus can be put to death. At the death of Jesus Christ, the devil thought that he had won. The devil thought that he had finished what he started way back in the Garden of Eden. However, the death of Christ will actually be the defeat of Satan. At the cross, the devil was defeated. At the cross, Satan's stronghold on this world was loosened and his dominion over man's hearts were broken. Jesus here looks toward the future. And he anticipates his victory when he says the ruler of this world will be cast out. And this victory would be accomplished through the most unusual way. Through shame, through pain, and through death. But at Calvary, Satan would receive his shame, his pain, and his death. Augustine says, the devil kept possession of mankind. 
holding men in, as criminals bound over to punishment by the handwriting of their sins, having dominion in their hearts of the unbelieving, dragging them, deceiving them, keeping them in captive to worship, to the worship of a creature for which they had deserted the Creator. But by the faith of Christ, confirmed by His death and resurrection, through His blood shed for the remission of sins, thousands of believing persons obtained deliverance from the dominion of the devil, meaning you. We are now joined to the body of Christ and quickened by His Spirit as faithful menders under so great of a head. We go from Adam to Christ. We go from Satan's dominion to being heirs to the throne. Jesus granted victory out of apparent defeat. And on the cross, the world saw a loser. The world saw a man who was just another religious kook. They saw this man who claimed to be God. The Savior crucified was in reality the Savior glorified. Jesus was so confident in his victory that he was that he was going to to accomplish that he says in his disciple to his disciples in chapter 14 verse 30 of chapter of John I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming but but get this and he has nothing on me before his death Jesus tells the disciples the devil is coming but he has no power over me Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, and that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. That doesn't mean that the devil does not try to lure you away from Christ. That doesn't mean that the devil is not around and he's not trying to take you away from, from your salvation. Don't... don't don't underestimate his power. But don't give him too much power. Because the devil is a defeated foe. And he can only go as far as God allows him to. The devil was stripped of a large part of his dominion at the death of Christ. He was casted out of the world at Christ's first coming. And at Christ's second coming, he will be cast out, cast in to the lake of fire. At the cross, the words of God in Genesis 3.15 came true. Jesus was bruised on his heel, but the devil was delivered a death blow on his head. The first Adam was cast out of the Garden of Eden by eating of the fruit of the tree. The last Adam, Christ, casted Satan and his reign over the world by hanging on a tree. Glory be to God. And finally, the last accomplishment of the cross was the salvation of Christ's people. Verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The death of Jesus Christ will be the judgment of this world, but also will be the salvation of God's elect, of God's people. And And the verse, And I... When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. It's the same expression that Jesus uses to Nicodemus in John 3.15. As Moses lifted up the servant of the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. There is a great certainty in that statement, I will draw. The death of Jesus would be such an attraction for all kinds of men. 
God, by the means of the cross, will draw people from every language, from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation to worship his son, Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrifice would mean that salvation has come to all of God's people who are all scattered abroad. This verse also speaks of the drawing power of the cross in, in our evangelism. When we are going out, when we are gospeling, the cross is what we should highlight. The cross is, yes, folly to many, but to some it is the greatest act of love that one has ever done. The cross is the apex of the gospel because at the cross we see that that holy God and sinful man are reconciled back together through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is where Jesus shines like the diamond that he is, and it is where God's glory is on full display. By means of the cross, Jesus gathers his elect, and as he was lifted up, he drew all men to himself. Brothers and sisters, you are a testimony of the cross's drawing power. You are a testimony of the cross's drawing effect. You are the power of... You are a product of the drawing power of the cross. Growing up, I always understood that Jesus died for the whole world and everyone in it. But when Christ saved me, when I started to understand the depths of what the cross was and what it meant, and when I allowed the Bible to define who Jesus died for, I started to quickly understand that Jesus knew every single name of whom he died for. This is not teaching universal atonement. This is teaching particular, particular redemption. He did not know, not only know the names of who he died for, but he has loved them in eternity past. The crazy thought is the Father in eternity past gave me to the Son as a love gift. And in the fullness of time, the Son paid for my ransom. <clears throat> what drew me to the cross was the personal intention of the Savior. The death of the cross was, the death of Christ was, was not a general or universal death. But it was an effectual death. Not one drop of blood was wasted, and not one person in hell will ever say that Jesus died for me. The cross was central in the life of Jesus. And those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ can say with full confidence that your name was written on his hand, and he died in your place. The cross was central in Christ's life, therefore the cross must be central in our lives as well. We must declare like Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You might not know all the different theology strands, but know Christ and know the power of His resurrection. So the purpose of Jesus' coming was to glorify God through the Father's death. The second was to judge the world, slay the devil, and draw His people to Himself. And lastly, Jesus' purpose was to be a light in a dark world. Verse 34 and 37 says, So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid, from, hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still didn't believe in him. Jesus just leaves them at their unbelief. Here we see the blindness and the hard hearts of the crowd. Earlier, they were just nailing, hailing him as king, as, as the Messiah. Now they're back questioning, who is 
the Son of Man? Who are you? The people knew that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but they couldn't understand Jesus when he would talk about his death. In their minds, the Messiah was to have an everlasting kingdom. The Messiah wasn't supposed to die. The idea of the Messiah hanging from a Roman cross sound ridiculous to them. That is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. They can't get over the fact that our Messiah is going to have an eternal kingdom, but, but he's going to die on a cross. <clears throat> they love the fact of a glorious eternal Messiah, but the suffering, dying Messiah, they couldn't grasp and they didn't get. That is why they ask him, who is the Son of Man? In other words, we know that the Son of Man, we know that we know of the Son of Man that is talked about in Daniel 7. That he's going to have an everlasting dominion, but, but who is this Son of Man that must be lifted up? Who are you and, and who do you claim to be? And now we're back to the same old question. Who is this man, Jesus? Up to this point, Jesus has turned water into wine. He has healed a noble man's son, healed a man who's been sick for 38 years, fed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two small fish. He has healed a man who's been blind since birth, raised a man from the dead, from death. He spoke in a way that made it, even his own enemies say, no one has ever spoke the way this man does. And yet, people still don't receive Jesus as the Messiah. But Jesus is done with answering their questions. And we see that in his response in verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. It is as if Jesus is bypassing any theological discussion about who the Messiah is. He is done with all the talk. And he reminds them that he will be with them only for a short amount of time. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Very similar to what he said in, in chapter 7, verse 33, I will be with you a little while longer. And where I'm going, then I'm going to him who sent me. Jesus doesn't go any further in his conversation about who the Messiah is. He knows that they are not seeking the truth. The light of the world that has shined so brightly is about to fade off back into the darkness. So he makes one last invitation. Verse 36, while you have light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. It's as if Jesus is urging them one last time to believe in him. This is a call to unbelievers. Jesus makes one last final appeal. If people don't accept Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus knew that but yet he still shows his love, his mercy, his compassion, and his patience toward the lost. As if Jesus didn't know who, was, who, was, who his elect was. He offers himself to everybody. That is the third purpose of Jesus' coming. To invite all men to believe in him. And we see Christ giving these open invitations to all those who have ears to hear throughout the Gospel of John. But this must be our purpose in life as well. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, we are called sons of light. You are light. We are to be light in dark spaces. We are to invade dark spaces, wherever they're at, and shine like the light that we are. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've come to the right place. And I beg you this morning to come to the light. If you have been away from the light, 
And if you've been tampering in the darkness, I beg you to come to the light. There are elders here, there are people here that will encourage you, that will pray for you, and that will keep you accountable. Acknowledge that you have sinned against the Holy God, repent of your sins, accept Jesus Christ's perfect sacrifice, and trust in his finished work alone. And friend, if you do that, the Bible says that you will no longer be a slave to sin, but you will be God's child and you will have eternal life. That is the promise of the Father. In closing, brothers and sisters who are of the faith, continue to be lights where the Lord has you at. Yes, acts of kindness are great, and that's a great way to spread God's light, but the main way we do that is by sharing our faith. The main way we, we are light to this world is by giving people the gospel. Trust that the gospel is the power unto salvation. Trust that when the gospel goes forth, people's lives are changed. You are the product of that. Allow the purpose of your life to be one who spreads God's light, who spreads the light of the gospel in a dark world. Explain to people Christ and him crucified. Explain to people that on the cross, Jesus not only defeated Satan, but also paid for the sins of all those who would ever believe in him. And if you reject his sacrifice, then you will be judged for your unbelief. And lastly, may you do all this for the glory of God. May the aim of your life be to make much of God. May your life reflect the character and the glory of God. When trials come your way, may the glory of God be a sweet delight to your soul. To where you can look at every situation and you will say, Lord, through this, may your name be glorified. That is why God saved you. And this is the purpose of your life. To glorify God forever. May we stand.